It's great to be back with you all, man. It is really it's one of my favorite events I get to do, get to show up here in Retta and be with this church. I love this church, man. One of the greatest things about this weekend is for the first time in 26 years, you'll have a decent student pastor. So that is a blessing. Thank God for that. You've got a terrible pastor, so you have to deal with that. So anyway, no, y'all are blessed, man. It's awesome. It's good to be back. Uh, had a great weekend with the students last night, man. I had a student get saved last night. It was awesome, man. We just had a great weekend together with y'all. So um, I, I, I've probably shared this before here, but if you, know, if you know Ed, you know this. Our love language is talking trash, okay? All right? I probably never said a nice thing to Ed in my life, ever, all right? Um, we were talking yesterday, like the worst thing you could ever say to either one of us is, man, I'm just kidding, right? If you're going to hammer us, hammer it and let it hang. Don't, don't apologize, all right? Then we feel like you don't know us. That's how we roll, all right? And, and, and because of that, both of us are big pranksters, all right? My whole life, I've always pulled pranks. I mean, always messed with people all the time. So especially when I was in college, all right? I lived in the college dorm, and I pulled some of the greatest pranks ever living in the college dorm. I mean, it, it was awesome, right? I mean, I, I actually lived in the college dorm all four years, all right? Most people get out of there after a year, but I stayed all four years. There was always something going on, and I pulled some of the best pranks ever living in the college dorm, all right? Like, like one of my favorite things to do, man, is that I would get like a trash can, fill it up with water, lean it up against somebody's door, and bang on their door and run off, and they open the door and floods the room. And, you know, and if you were a jerk, you'd leave the trash in the can, all right? Okay, I would just do the water because I'm a nice guy, all right? Um, the best thing, this is old school, y'all should do this, it's awesome, all right? Doesn't make that big a mess, you can do it this afternoon to your brother and sister, all right? Y'all remember old school records, you know what I'm talking about, like vinyl, the old school deals, right? They came in a cardboard sleeve, right? Get a, go to Goodwill, you can get one for like a quarter. Throw the record away, take the cardboard sleeve, fill that thing up with whipped cream or shaving cream or something like that, and then just barely slide it under somebody's door and stomp it. Boom. And when you do, it blows shaving cream all over the room, all right? It's amazing, all right? It's the greatest thing for somebody's trying to study, barely hitting the face with whipped cream. It's awesome, right? It's a great prank. I love doing those pranks. I love doing that kind of stuff. So when I got out of college and I went to seminary, I thought, man, I'm going to move in the seminary dorm and do the same kind of stuff in seminary that I used to do in college, right? Well, I, I get to seminary. I don't know if you all know what seminary is, okay? But seminary is where preachers go to learn how to be preachers, okay? All right? It is literally the most uptight, boring place on planet Earth, okay? Because believe it or not, not all preachers are like me and Ed, okay? All right? We were the outcasts at seminary. I'm telling you, man, they're, they're the, these guys were so uptight. I mean, they were, like, like we called them preacher boys. They were all uptight. I mean, they were all, like, eating up with being preachers, man. They carried briefcases all the time and wore, wore, wore their suits and ties to class and stuff, call everybody brother all the time. Which was weird. I, mean, I don't mind you calling me brother. I don't, that's really, it's kind of, it's fine. But the way these guys did it was weird, man. I mean, these guys would, would talk like, you remember like old timey Baptist preachers, like old school, like that, that, that kind of voice, like brothers and sisters, open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Like they, like they, remember the preachers like that, okay? These guys would talk like that in normal conversation, all right? Brother, would you pass me the salt? I mean, nobody talks that way, all right? It was weird. They just did it all the time. Like, maybe, do you talk to your wife like that? Come on, honey, let's go to bed. Nobody says that. Stop talking. It was just weird, all right? And it just drove me crazy, right? Well, I found some guys who like to have fun. Ed was one of them. And uh, we started doing the same kind of stuff in the seminary dorm we used to do in the college dorm. And y'all, it freaked those preacher boys out, okay? All right, they didn't know what to do with us, all right? I'm pretty sure they were praying for us. I'm pretty sure they thought we were lost, need to get saved. But we were tearing that place up, man. Like one night, we're having a water fight, okay? 
We started on the first floor. We got our super soakers, man. We're blasting people, shooting preacher boys in the face. It was awesome. We get to the third floor. We pin these guys in the room, and uh, we're standing there waiting on them to come out so we can light them up, right? Well, uh, <laughs> we're standing there. My friend Barry, he points out to me. He knows I got ADHD. I'm impulsive. I don't think. I just do, okay, right? Gets me in trouble sometimes. He points out to me that there's a fire extinguisher hanging on the wall next to the door, okay? Right? And, so, and he says, dude, you want to be funny? I'm like, what? what? He's like, what if you shot that fire extinguisher off under the door? I gave it zero thought. I'm like, that's awesome. I grab it, shove it under the door, and unload it. Just the whole nine, okay? Right? The door to this room comes flying open in like two seconds, all right? You cannot see an inch into this room. It is literally wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling, white powder. It was amazing, okay? Well, y'all, the thing about fire extinguisher powder that I didn't know at the time is that, it, that, that the, the way it puts out a fire is it has the same effect. I mean, the way, has, the way it puts out a fire is it immediately removes all the oxygen from the air, okay? So these guys can't breathe, man, all right? They come rolling out of this cloud of smoke, man, rolling around the floor, hacking, coughing, trying to get a bath. I'm laughing my ding-dang head off because it was awesome, all right? Okay, the other thing about fire extinguisher powder I wasn't aware of is it has the same effect on fire alarms that smoke does, all right? So I don't know about y'all, but when I set off a fire alarm in a dorm full of preachers at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm not hanging around, okay? I'm out, dude. We take off running. We're hiding out in Barry's room. Y'all, that place erupted, all right? I mean, it blew up. I mean, in 30 seconds, there were a 1,000 preachers in bathrobes freaking out, okay? I mean, brother, what's going on out here? They're going nuts, all right? For like a week, nobody knew who did it, okay? And I'm keeping my mouth shut. I'm not saying anything, all right? And uh, that's all these preacher boys could talk about. That's all they could talk about was who set off the fire on. They were going, they were just freaking out, right? I mean, I actually had a couple of them come up to me and actually say, brother, can you imagine anyone so immature to set off a fire alarm in the seminary dorm? I'm like, no, brother. <laughs> Can't imagine what kind of idiot would have done something like that, right? After a week, I get a letter from the dean of the seminary, okay? The dean is like your principal on steroids, okay? All right, like the meanest guy at seminary, that's the dean, all right? I go to his office, I'm busted, okay? Like you saw in the video, I used to have red hair, I'm six foot six. I mean, I, I, I couldn't get away with anything. You can see me a mile away doing something stupid and know it's me, right? Somebody saw me, I'm busted, dead to rights. I walk in the office, what this guy says to me is like, Mr. Runkles, you're not adjusting well. To seminary life. I'm like, thank God, okay? All right, because I start fitting in with these dorks, send me home, okay? Right? Then he tells me, I got to go to counseling. I got to go see a shrink for six weeks because I'm not fitting in with these guys, With actually, which actually turned out to be a good thing, okay? Because believe it or not, I had a little growing up to do, okay? Right? And after I went to counseling, that kind of happened, it kind of turned out to be good. But until that happened, whoo, man, we turned that seminary upside down. I mean, we rocked that place, y'all, because we found the one thing that seminary could not handle, fun. <laughs> and when we started having fun, I'm telling y'all, man, it turned that place upside down. And y'all, the one thing, the one thing the world we live in cannot handle is the truth of who Jesus really is. I'll tell you, the world we live in is fine if we water Jesus down. They're okay if we water Jesus down to being the guy who just said, don't judge. I saw a meme the other day on Facebook. So this is how people read the Bible today. Page of the Bible, all the words marked out with a sharpie across the top of the page. It just said, don't judge. 
long as Jesus is a guy who just said, don't make a judgment, don't ever judge anybody ever, they're fine if we water him down to that. They're fine if Jesus is just a guy who said, you know, you know if we're, you're without sin, then you can cast a stone. Only him without sin can cast a stone. If that's what Jesus, that's all he said, they're fine with that version of Jesus. They're fine if we water Jesus down to being a guy who just said, you know, be yourself or, 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 or love everybody. Or he was just a guy who showed up and said, you know what, man, he was just a, he was just a good teacher. He said some nice stuff, man. They're fine if that's who Jesus is. Just a guy who said, you love everybody and you're okay and I'm okay and we're all going to heaven. Let me tell you something, church. That ain't Jesus. That's not who Jesus is. Yeah, Jesus said don't judge. Sure, that's what he said. But that's Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. And I would say that that, that is probably the most misinterpreted verse in the entire Bible. Go read all of Matthew chapter 7 today. Matthew chapter 7, you read the whole chapter, what Jesus is saying in that chapter is he's not so much teaching us not to judge ever. You know what he's teaching us? He's teaching us how to judge. What he's basically saying in that passage is there is a difference between making a judgment and being judgmental. There's a difference in standing up for right and wrong and looking down your nose and thinking you're better than somebody. God never intended for us not to stand up for what's right and wrong in our world. He intends for us to take a stand. Everybody wants to quote Matthew 7, 1. Nobody wants to quote John 7, 24. You know what Jesus said, John 7, 24? He said, stop making judgments based on appearances and make right judgments. <gasps> what? Jesus said to make judgments? <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah, Jesus said, if you're without sin, you can cast the first stone. Sure, he said that. But you know what he said next? Go and sin no more. Stop doing what you're doing. Jesus never said to be yourself. I tell teenagers all the time, the worst thing you could do is be yourself. You'd be who God's called you to be. You don't be yourself. You deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus. That's what Jesus said. Yeah, Jesus said love everybody. He did. And here's the problem we have in our culture. The way Jesus defines love and the way the world defines love is different. The culture we live in, they define love as meaning for you to love me, you have to affirm everything I'll do, believe, and live and all my behavior is okay. If you don't do that, then you don't love me. Jesus defines love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. Everybody quotes in weddings, but here's what Jesus defines love as. He says, love does not rejoice in evil, but love rejoices in the truth. Loving people means telling people the truth. That's the difference. Y'all, Jesus is an intense dude. Jesus is a God. You know this? Jesus talked more about hell and judgment than he did about love in the kingdom of heaven. Did you know that? Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else in the whole Bible. Jesus is a guy who affirmed God's plan for marriage in every single word of the Old Testament. Go home this week. I dare you. Go home and read the words in red in your Bible. Just go read the words that Jesus said. Students, I really dare you. Go home and just read the words in red. Talk about it all weekend long, about who he really is, getting a picture of who Jesus really is. Go read the words that he said. He's not some mamby-pamby, little wishy-washy softy, all right? He's an intense guy. He's an intense guy, y'all. He is not just some good teacher, all right, who just showed up on the day he was born and just said a few nice things. In his own words, y'all, he is the alpha and the omega. That means the beginning and the end. That means he is not just a, a human being who showed up the day he was born like you and me. He is the eternal God. All right? He lives, exists in the Trinity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is eternal. Alpha and Omega. That means as far as time goes that way, he was. As far as time goes that way, he will be. All right? I mean, when Moses encountered him at the burning bush, and he said, what's your name? He said, I am 
that I am. It doesn't translate too well from Hebrew to English, but essentially what he said is I'm the to-be verb. I always was, I always will be, I just am. And y'all, not only is he the Alpha and the Omega, he is the light of the world, y'all. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Lily of the Valley. He is a bright morning star. He is a Prince of Peace. He is a wonderful counselor. He is the bread of life. He is the great I am. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the everlasting God. He is God Almighty. And he is the King of Kings, y'all. And he is the Lord of Lords. And he is the only one who saves. Out of 7 billion people on this planet, the only way that any of those people get to go to heaven is through Jesus Christ. Muhammad doesn't save you. Buddha doesn't save you. Brahman doesn't save you. Only Jesus saves. Because Jesus saves, y'all. That's what he does. That's why he came. And that's the reality of who Jesus really is, y'all. And that is who we are called as followers of Christ to introduce to the world, to share with the world the truth, not some watered-down version, not some softened version, version of who Jesus is, but to introduce to the world we live in the reality of who he really is. And I'm telling you, if we begin to do that, it'll turn the world upside down. And I get it. We live in a world where it'd be easy to get discouraged. We live in a world that wants us to shut up and go away, right? We live in a world who does not too cool with Christianity. I tell teenagers this all the time. Adults, most of us adults, we grew up in a world where people who were not Christians still thought Christianity was beneficial to the culture, right? They expected your school teacher to go to church. They expected a deacon to go to church. I mean, they expected your, your banker or your lawyer or whatever to go to church. But they're growing up in a world where people who are not Christians think Christianity is disgusting. They hate our morality. They think Christianity is dangerous to the culture, and they want us to shut up and go away. And I get it. It'd be real easy for us to get discouraged. It'd be real easy to begin to think, man, how, how can I share the gospel? Nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to get, why would even want to get saved in this culture, in this world we live in? And if that's the attitude you have or the fears that you have, I would ask you this question. Then how did anybody ever get saved in the first three centuries of the church? Because, y'all, we've been here before. Because the world that Christianity was born into, the Roman Empire, very similar culture to the world we live in today. It was a world just like today where people thought the government was the answer to everybody's problems. That salvation comes through politics and sex is the meaning of life. Sounds familiar? We've been here before. And the Apostle Paul and his missionary buddies turned that world upside down, man. They brought it down. Not by watering down the gospel. Not by telling some seeker-sensitive, politically correct version of the gospel to soften the blow but by preaching the unadulterated reality and truth of who Jesus really is. And it changed the world, y'all. And that's what God has called us to do today. Don't be discouraged, man. I'm encouraged. We say this all the time at youth events. When things are going crazy, something's going wrong, sounds jacked up or whatever, man, if the devil's working this hard to mess this event up, God's fixing to do something big. We always say that, right? I think culture-wide we ought to be saying that. If all this stuff going on in the world, the devil is working this hard to, to jack up all this stuff and to put Christianity and put us in a corner, buckle up, man, because God's fixed to do something big. They say the church is dying. All the numbers, all the evangelical Christians are leaving the church. Nobody's leaving. You know what's happening? I think because the culture has changed, there used to be some benefits to coming to church or being a Christian 
just culturally. Well, those days are over. And I think those people who just came to church and were involved in church just for those cultural benefits are leaving. They never were with us anyway. You know what I think? God's purifying his bride. That's what I think is happening. He's separating the wheat from the chaff. We got to go. We got to go and share the gospel. Tonight, this morning, we're going to do. We're going to take a look at the Apostle Paul and his missionary buddies and what they did to change the world. And we're assuming something needs to happen in our lives so we can do the same thing. All right? Now, obviously, before the Apostle Paul could win anybody to Jesus, he had to get saved. Right? Well, you never heard Paul's testimony. Buckle up. Nobody has testimony as crazy as this guy. All right? So if you all have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 9. All right? Acts chapter 9, we'll start in verse 1, okay? Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now, when I read this, you're going to notice that it says the name Saul, S-A-U-L. Most of y'all probably know this. Saul and Paul are the same guy, okay? Saul was a guy, when he got saved, his life was so radically changed, he changed his name to Paul, okay? So when I read this, I'm just going to read it as Paul so we don't get mixed up, all right? Look at verse 1. It says this. Meanwhile, Paul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now, where it says breathing out murderous threats, y'all, what that means is, you see, before Paul got saved, he did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. He did not believe Jesus was the one who came to save us, all right? He knew he died on the cross. Everybody knew he died on the cross, but he did not believe he rose from the dead. And he saw Christianity, called the way at the time, a threat to his way of life. And he wanted to, to put this thing down before it got started. He wanted to wipe this Christian movement out before it ever got any traction, right? And his plan to get rid of Christianity believe it or not, was to kill all the Christians. He just got through killing some Christians in Jerusalem. He's on his way to Damascus to kill some more. Check out what happens on the way. Verse 5, he says this. All right, sorry, verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Now, this is the risen Jesus, all right? This is Jesus risen from the dead. Now, you all know the story. Jesus dies on the cross, right? Raised from the dead, and then eventually ascends into heaven. Well, there was a period of about 40 days from when he rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven. And over these 40 days, he made appearances to groups of people. At one time, he appeared to over 500 people at one time. Risen Jesus, holding his hands, holding his feet. There he is. We have 12 recorded appearances in Scripture of these, these appearances that he made. This is the last one. Here's Jesus. Holes in his hands, holes in his feet. The risen Jesus in all his glory standing in front of Paul. Paul's been out murdering Christians. He's in a sticky situation, right? Look what his response is, verse 5. Who are you, comma, Lord, question mark. Now, in the original language, the Bible's written in Greek. We don't have punctuation like we do in English, okay? They didn't have commas and question marks the way we do in English. So they didn't work the same way, all right? But I think the translators nailed it right here. Because I think there was a pause between who are you and Lord. I think there was a pause between who are you and Lord. Because when Paul said, who are you? He was trying to deny one more time who Jesus was. He didn't want it to be true, man. If this really was Jesus, if Jesus really rose from the dead, he had to rethink his whole life. He didn't want it to be true. When he said, who are you? He was trying more and more more time to deny it was true. He was trying one more time to deny that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who came to save us. But he couldn't deny it. Because there he was, man, holes in his hands, holes in his feet, and all his glory, the resurrected Jesus. 
So he confessed him as Lord. And when he said the word Lord, I believe he expressed the essence of Romans chapter 10, verse 9, where it says, if you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, obviously believe that because there he stood, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means God, not just God of the universe, but God of your life, you will be saved. And when Paul confessed Jesus is Lord in that instant, Jesus saved him, he forgave him, he wiped the slate clean, and it absolutely changed his life forever. And y'all, that's exactly what Jesus did for me when I was 16 years old. Because I'm not a Christian, because I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a Christian home, but I rejected the whole thing, all right? I mean, I, I was abused when I was a kid, little, and, and, and I had a lot of angry, anger at God because of that. I also felt worthless, couldn't really believe that he really loved me, and I just rejected it. But I knew something wasn't right, and I couldn't have explained it like this as a kid, but I knew something was missing. I was always looking for something to fix me, something to give me the peace I was looking for, somebody to give me the, 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 the this, 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 fill this emptiness, this void I had. And I was always looking to other people to see if maybe they knew something I didn't. So I was a kid, so I looked at my friends. See if they'd figured out something. Maybe they knew something I didn't know. We were in middle school, like eighth grade. Some of my buddies, we had some older friends at church. They started inviting us to go to parties. My buddies were going. I thought, maybe that's, 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 that's what it is. But they're all going, they're having fun. I guess I'll go to parties. So I go to a party. I'm in eighth grade. After we were there a few weeks, as you can imagine, somebody sticks a can of beer in my face. I'm looking around. Everybody else is having a beer. Everybody else is drinking. Everybody else is having fun. I thought, maybe that's it. Maybe that's what I've been looking for. So I have my first beer. Not proud of that. It's kind of hardcore to do that in eighth grade, but that's my story. And I'm not going to lie, it was awesome. First time in my life, my inhibitions went away. First time in my life, I wasn't this little shy, scared little redheaded kid. First time in my life, I realized I was kind of funny. All of a sudden, I'm the life of the party, man. I remember thinking at that moment, I thought, this is it. This is what I've been looking for my whole life. This is, this is what I've been looking for. This is it. But then the party was over. Buzz wears off, everybody goes home, I'm back home laying in my bed, and all my baggage is still there. All the peace and hope that I desperately craved still eluded me. All that void was still there until the next weekend. You take me back to the party, dude, get a couple beers of me, I'm the funniest kid in the room. I'm going to walk into Mardi Gras, this is, this is it. I mean, the Bible even says, y'all, Hebrews 11:25, that sin is fun. It does say that. You know that Bible says that? It says it's fun for a season, for a little while. You know what that means? Yeah, it's fun but it doesn't satisfy you. It always leaves you wanting and craving more. It makes the hole bigger. It doesn't fill the hole. It makes it bigger. This rocks along until I get to be about a junior in high school. I was class clown. Joke every weekend at our school. I'm not proud of it. Was Where's the party this weekend? I was like, where's Runks? That's who I was. On the outside, other teenagers might have thought I was living a dream. As stupid and fleeting as popularity is in high school, I didn't think I was popular, but people did. You might have thought I was living it up, but I hated it, because I knew how shallow it was, man. I knew how many times that I'd gone out on the weekend and played the clown, make everybody laugh, get drunk and be an idiot, and then go home empty and alone. I felt like every weekend I had to go put on a mask, time to be drunk, time to be crazy, but I didn't know what else to do. During this time, I wound up sitting in a geometry class right before lunch with none of my friends. I wound up sitting next to a guy named Kirk. We didn't have any friends in there either. And uh, y'all, Kirk was different from anybody I'd ever met before. He didn't get drunk on the weekends. He didn't party like I did. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't have to do the stuff I had to do to deal with his life. I couldn't figure it out, man. It drove me nuts. I'm like, well, what's the deal with this guy? I mean, like, something, this guy knows something I don't know. I got to figure out what makes this guy tick. I had no idea Kirk was a Christian. I had no clue. 
Because he wasn't some Jesus freak, Bible-thumping weirdo like I thought Christians were at the time. He was just a regular dude. So I just started watching, as creepy as that might sound. I just started watching how he lived, how he acted, how he reacted, how he treated people. Like, I've got to figure this dude out. We kind of got to be friends. He didn't have any friends in there, and I didn't have any friends in there. We had an open campus at our high school, which means we could, we could leave and go eat lunch and come back. Me and Kirk were sitting at lunch one day at Taco Villa one day in, in uh, like around November. And I said, I'm going to ask you a question, man. You're going to think I'm crazy. I was like, what's the deal with you, man? How come you don't get drunk on the weekends? How come you don't, you don't party? How, 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 how come you don't have to do all the stuff I have to do to deal with your life? And he started telling me about Jesus. You know what's crazy? I want you really listen to this, students. He didn't tell me anything about Jesus I didn't already know. Because I've been going to church since nine months before I was born. You know what I'm saying? My parents drugged me and I hated it. I've been to all the Dean Owls. I've been to all the camps. I'd heard all the speakers. My parents made me go. I'd heard it all before. But the first time in my life, man, the first time in my life, y'all, the light bulb came on. Because it wasn't a grown-up telling me what Jesus could do for me. It wasn't a youth pastor, as awesome as they are, or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher. It wasn't a grown-up telling me what Jesus could do for me. It was a guy who was the same age as me, the same needs as me, looking me in the face, telling me how Jesus could meet those needs. And y'all, his words had power. You know why? Because I'd seen it. I knew something was different. Now I knew why. And for the first time in my life, I begin to think, you know what, man? Maybe this Jesus thing, that's what I'm looking for. Maybe that's really for me. A week later, Kirk invites me to go to this Christian concert. I go to the concert, band plays. At the end, they give an invitation, opportunity for people to get saved, respond to the gospel. It was the most poorly done invitation I've ever seen in my life. Because all the guy says is, he goes, you want to get saved, stand up. So, man, I stood up. He goes, now pray. Well, he didn't tell us what to pray. So you know what I prayed? When I got saved, kind of unorthodox, pretty much I just said, Jesus, I, I know I'm a sinner. I know you're the Savior. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. But I want to have in my life what Kirk has in his. So just look at me. That's the power, y'all, of a teenager living for Jesus. How awesome would it be, man? How awesome would it be if one of your teammates or classmates or friends sometime this spring bowed their head to give their life to Jesus and say, you know what, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. I know I'm a sinner and I know you're the Savior, but Jesus, I want to have in my life what she has in hers. I want to have in my life what he has in his. I want to have in my life what I see in the life of my friend. We all have that power. I'm telling you, every one of y'all have people in your life that are looking at you they know you go to Red Baptist Church. They know you're a believer. They're looking to see, is this real? Would they ever say that about you? Man, I wish I had what they had. You have that power. Every one of us have people around us in our world looking at us to see if this is real. What is your life telling them? What is your life telling them? As soon as don't put Kirk on a pedestal. I don't want any of y'all to think that Kirk was some kind of super Christian, all right? He's no different than any teenager sitting here right now. He made mistakes. He wasn't perfect. He, he wasn't perfect. But he loved Jesus enough to try his best to follow him. That's all he did. There's nothing that none of us couldn't do. And it changed my life. 
And I knew when I first got saved, man, this, this, this wasn't just for me. Man, I was just dumb enough to go to school and tell all my buddies. <laughs> I go to school, I'm like, dude, we don't have to get drunk anymore. We don't have to party. We just need Jesus, man. They all thought I'd lost my ever-loving mind, all right? Some guy, some high school senior, I didn't even know on campus, comes up to me, he's like, going, dude, aren't you the guy? Are you that guy who used to get drunk all the time and now you know all about Jesus? I'm like, yeah, that's me, man. Want to hear about him? It's just what happened. It changed my whole life, man, because I went home that night. When I left that, 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 that church when I got saved, I remember driving home in my truck that night. I was scared to death. I was so afraid it was going to be just like every other time. Go somewhere, have this great, fun experience. Come home, buzz wears off. Everybody goes home, lay in my bed, never seems the same. But when I got home that night, something's different. I still had all my baggage. I had all my junk I had to work through eventually. But that void wasn't there. That peace that I'd craved all my life was there. I had a hope that I'd never had in my whole life. And it never went away. And I knew I had to share it. And so did Paul. When Paul got saved, man, he knew this wasn't just for him. Paul realized real quick, this relationship that we have with Jesus, taking notes, write this down, this relationship we have with Jesus, yes, it is a personal relationship, yes, it is, but y'all, it is personal, but it is not private. It's personal, but it is not private. What God is doing in your life is not just for you. What God is doing in your life is meant to be shared with the people around you. And Paul knew it, and he got to work. Look what his response was. Check it out. Verse 20. said at once. Really, it was probably more like a week or two. Paul began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Now check this out. Two weeks ago, Paul's out trying to kill everybody who says Jesus is the Son of God. Now he's telling people Jesus is the Son of God. You think people didn't look at him funny? Everybody thought it was a trick. This guy's tricking us, man. This is fake. All he's doing is waiting for us to say Jesus is Lord, and this guy's going to come get us. But he wasn't playing. He kept on preaching the truth, man. And over time, people began to believe him and see this was real. This transformation was real. And like I said, it changed the world, man. That's why we still talk about the guy 2,000 years later. Y'all, he changed the world for Jesus. But check out the response of his buddies, the guys on his team who'd been killing Christians with him. Look what their response was. Verse 23. After a few days had gone by, the Jews, his teammates, conspired to kill him. And here's a scenario. Paul, our leader, last week, he's out trying to take out every Christian on the planet. Now he's trying to make more of them. Our leader has become the enemy. We're taking him out. Paul went from being the leader of these guys to being on the hit list. Y'all don't think for a second he didn't know that was coming. You think he didn't know when he started claiming Jesus was Lord that they weren't coming after him? He knew, man. He knew it was coming. But y'all, he didn't waste a second worrying about what they might say or what, even what they might do. Paul just went to work sharing the gospel to the world. Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul says it like this. He says, I don't care about my life. Think about that. I don't care about me. I don't care what happens to me. The only thing I care about, the only thing that matters to me it's finishing the task of sharing Jesus with the world. That's it. Romans chapter 9, verse 3. This is how intense he was, how passionate he was about reaching the lost. He makes it absolutely clear, almost pretty dead gum clear, that he would almost, y'all, almost be willing 
to give up his salvation and go to hell if that would bring his friends to Jesus. This guy had a sense of urgency for the lost. He had a burden and a passion for people that didn't know Jesus. He knew it was personal and not private, and he had the guts to go and share it. And that's what God is calling every one of us to do. That's what he's calling us to do. We are called to go and share the gospel. That's it. We're called to be evangelistic. It drives me crazy that the world we live in has politicized the term evangelical. All those evangelical Christians drives me nuts. There is no such thing as a non-evangelical Christian unless you're living in outright, unrepentant sin. Because we are called to be evangelistic. That means to share the good news. Every one of us have a calling on our life. Last thing Jesus said before he ascended into heaven for the last time. Matthew 28, 19. Famous last words. You think it'd be pretty important is the last thing he said. He said, go and make disciples. In other words, go and tell people what I've done. I'm passing the torch. I'm passing the baton. I'm out. It's on y'all now. Students, listen to me. Look at my face. God's only plan for your friends to get saved is for you to tell them. God's only plan for your friends or your co-workers to get saved is for you to go and share with them. He doesn't have a plan B. He's not coming back again to reveal himself to the world and show everybody, oh yeah, this is real. He's coming back. But when he does, it's game over. Nobody gets saved after that. He's already done it. He's passed the baton to us. Students, your friends don't need, don't need Nick to come to your school and tell your friends about Jesus. They don't need me or Ed or any of your, your, your leaders to come tell them about Jesus. They don't care what we think. They don't care with somebody who's 20 years old or 30 years old or 40 years old or 50 years old. They don't care. We're all old. We'd just be another adult telling them what to do. I wish I could go to your school and tell your friends about Jesus. I wish they'd listen to me. But if teenagers know who I am, they love me. If they don't, I'm just bald in 50. You know what I'm saying? None of your friends will listen to me. They sure wouldn't listen to Ed. But listen. They'll listen to you. They don't care what Jesus can do for somebody my age or even Nick's age. They need to see it in your life. Adults, the same thing's true for you. Look, I don't know that can be intimidating. I'm not saying all y'all have to go and do what I do. We all have different gifts. Believe it or not, I, I, nobody believes it when I say this, but I'm pretty introverted. I can talk to a thousand people about Jesus all day long, but in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, I'm uncomfortable. But some people are good at that. My son, that's what he, he's great at. He's probably a better evangelist than I am. He goes and hangs out at Korean grocery stores or Asian grocery stores and talks to guys from Korea or wherever, builds a relationship with them and starts sharing the gospel. That's what he does. He's great at it. I would be uncomfortable. I couldn't even, I, I can't imagine doing that. But he's great at it. Every one of y'all have a talent. My dad was a very successful entrepreneur, self-made guy. Told me many times, especially when I started this ministry. He said, you know what, I'd never be good 
at preaching or teaching. I couldn't do that. But God made me to make money. That's the only thing I'm good at. So I could fund ministries like yours and churches and other people that can go and do those things so they can go out and share the gospel. I'm telling you, when I can't get to heaven, when I get to heaven, I want to ask Jesus, just, just, just show me the people. Just, just show me the people that are here. Because the dollars my mom and dad gave. You all have a talent. You know what my mom does? My mom goes and sits in the hospital. People that are dying, holds their hand, loves on them, and shares the gospel. Nobody in their right mind will want me or Ed to come visit them in the hospital. You know? <laughs> we'll throw you a party when you get well. <laughs> we all have gifts and talents. Every one of us. And God expects every one of us to use those talents for the kingdom. Whatever it is. And I know it's difficult, man. We live in a world that wants us to shut up. We want to live in a world that just labels us all haters and bigots, right? All those Christians are just haters and bigots. Which is crazy because, I mean, I, I know a lot of Christians. I don't know any Christians that truly follow Jesus that are haters or bigots. I mean, we live in a world that tells us they define love different than we do. They don't define it the way Jesus does. So they think because we're crazy enough to just believe that Jesus meant what he said when he talked about sexuality, he meant it. And here's the thing. Disagreeing with someone doesn't mean you hate them. I think that is the most ludicrous thing in the world. You can disagree with someone without hating them. But the world we live in doesn't see it that way. And they label us as haters and bigots, and I hate it. And, and, and we could gripe all day long about how unfair it is and how wrong it is to label us that way. But you know what? It's our job to fix it. Here's how we fix it. It's real hard. It's real hard for somebody to call you a bigot or a hater if you're washing their feet. Y'all don't understand the reference. Let me explain it to you. In Jesus' world, everybody wore sandals. Filthy world. You show up at somebody's house, people's feet were nasty. So before you came in the house, a servant would meet you at the door and get down on their knees and have a basin of water and a towel, and they would, they would take your nasty sandals off your nasty feet, and they would take that water, and they would wash all the gunk and the filth and the muck off of your feet and dry it off with a towel so you could have clean feet and come in the house and have a nice meal together. Well, when Jesus met with his disciples for the last time before he was taken off and executed, when they walked in the room that night, a servant didn't get on his knees and wash their feet. Jesus did. The King of kings, y'all. God Almighty, the God of the universe, the eternal Alpha and Omega, got on his knees like in the dirt like a slave, and Jesus took their shoes off. And Jesus wiped the nasty scum and muck off their feet and dried their feet and cleaned them up so they could come in. It's the most beautiful picture of what it means to be a servant that there's ever been. So I'll say it again. It's real hard for somebody to call you a bigot or a hater if you're washing their feet. 
I have a friend. He's a pastor in Erie, Pennsylvania. A lesbian couple moved in next door to him and his wife in their neighborhood. So just like most of you, they weighed some banana nut bread, went next door, knocked on the door. Here's some banana nut bread. Welcome to the neighborhood. Glad to have you as a new neighbors. We live next door. I'm the pastor at such and such church. When he said he was a pastor, she just stepped back and shut the door. Without saying it, bigot, hater, leave us alone. Clearly she had some issues with Christians. Clearly that's what she thought. So he went out of his way from then on to try to be nice. Whatever he could to be a servant, whatever he could to be nice, to be friendly, whatever, whatever it took. And they, they always just kept him at arm's length. Just without ever saying it, bigot, hater, leave us alone. I don't know if you know this, but in Erie, Pennsylvania, it snows a lot, all right? One time I was there, it snowed 18 inches in 30 minutes, all right? I thought Jesus was coming right now, okay? I mean, this is insane, all right? Well, these two girls are from Florida. <laughs> They've probably never seen snow like that, if at all. Up there in Erie, Pennsylvania, about twice a week, before you can go to school or go to work, you've got to go dig your car out of a snowbank. Go shovel all the snow off your driveway just so you can back it out and get it on the street and go to work or school. They said it was pretty funny the first time these girls were out there trying to dig their car out, right? They didn't know what they are doing. So we went to help. And again, they're like, you know what? We got it. Leave us alone. So from then on, man, every time it snowed, no matter how early he had to get up before he dug their, his car out of a snowbank. He dug their car out of a snowbank. Before he shoveled his driveway, he shoveled their driveway. And y'all, that's when the walls begin to come down. That's when it became harder for them to say, bigot hater. Something about them is different. That led to some conversations. That led to building some relationships. That led to getting to know people. That led to even sharing some meals together. Because you can disagree and love someone. They got to be friends. They're beginning to get to share the gospel. Now there's some hard questions that are going to have to be answered when it comes to what repentance is going to look like. But let me tell you something. It is not a problem the gospel can't solve. And I can't wait to hear the rest of this story. Because I have no doubt those two girls are going to get saved. It's real hard, y'all, for someone to call you a bigot or a hater if you're washing their feet. Go start washing feet. Do you hear me? Quit griping, quit complaining. Go start sharing the gospel. Go start loving your neighbor. Pray every day. This ought to be a prayer on your prayer list every single day. God, give me somebody's feet to wash. I don't mean literally feet to wash, but you know what I'm saying. God, help me to see every need around me and give me the opportunity to go meet it. Billy Graham used to always say, it's God's job to, to judge, Holy Spirit's job to convict, and my job to love. I would add to that and to serve. Most heartbreaking story I've ever heard in all my years of traveling and doing this. 
I met a girl named Kelly Baker. She was from Amarillo, Texas. One Sunday afternoon, Kelly and her family go out to the lake. Her and her sister were in the lake playing some game that everybody's probably played to get some water, get some mud, throw it at somebody. Her sister goes under the water one time to get some mud, but she doesn't come up. So Kelly goes down to see what's going on. She gets down there. What happened was her sister got her foot stuck in the mud or under a rock or something. Her sister's face was 12 inches away from the surface. So Kelly goes down to the bottom. She's trying to get her foot pulled out. She can't get it loose. She comes back up to the top. She's just trying to give her mouth to mouth, but she's freaking out. She's just trying to push the water out of the way so maybe she can get a breath, y'all, but before a lifeguard or anybody else can come and help. Her sister drowned. Twelve inches, man. Twelve inches from the only thing that could have saved her. If she'd have just had a snorkel, y'all, if she'd have just had a snorkel, she could have saved her life. Every day of our life, every day of our lives, we walk past people who are drowning spiritually because they don't know Jesus. Every day of our life, y'all, we walk past people. We exist beside people who are living their lives inches away from the only thing that can save them. And you and me, we got to go out there and be the snorkel that connects them to Jesus. It's personal, yes, but it's not private. Every one of us has a job to do. And that's not to gripe. We gripe all the time about how bad things are. I say it all the time. You've got time to gripe, you've got time to pray. And you've got time to go share. We all have a job to do. So let's go do it. Don't y'all bow your heads and close your eyes for a minute. God, I thank you for this weekend, and I thank you for what you've done. I thank you, God, for what you're doing this morning. I pray in the next few minutes that you would do God-sized things in this place. I pray, God, if there's anyone here this morning that has never been saved, I pray that this morning they would be saved. I pray that tonight you would light a fire under this church to go out and reach their lost friends. They don't have any lost friends to go make some lost friends. God, do some God-sized things. 